Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Ship show. Well, the price of gold continues to retreat. Gold was down about maybe 12 bucks today, closed around $1,310 an ounce. The dollar index up again today, just back above the 96 handle. As more and more people begin to contemplate the possibility of a rate hike in either September or December, or maybe even both. Because the odds of a rate hike, either in September or December, have now increased to about even money, according to the markets. Whereas if you go back to June a couple of months ago, it was practically zero, the odds of a rate hike in September. And it was still a way long shot that we might get one in December. But what has changed in the last couple of months to make people who thought that there was basically no chance that the Fed was going to hike rates, to thinking that it's a coin toss. Well, the only thing that's really happened is that you've had various Fed officials going out of their way to mention that a rate hike is still possible. Now, I mean, why would they do that? I mean, obviously, a rate hike is possible. I mean, who's going to say it's impossible? There's no way that they're going to say that hiking rates is an impossibility and just rule it out completely, right? So it's always possible. But why are they going out of their way to to mention it? Well, usually they're asked a question. They're asked, well, are you going to raise rates? And their response is, well, yeah, it's possible, right? So, you know, they don't say we're going to raise rates. They just mention that a rate hike is possible. But I guess the way it's being interpreted is that, well, the reason they're saying it's possible is because they're probably going to do it or they're thinking about doing it, and if they weren't thinking about doing it, they wouldn't go out of their way to say that it was possible. But why not? I mean, if the Fed had no intention of raising interest rates, I doubt they would say that at this juncture. I still think they want people to believe that a rate hike is possible, because if you admit that it's not possible, that opens up a can of worms that the Fed doesn't want to open just yet. 
Because now you're admitting that the economy is weak, that the recovery is fragile or non-existent, or maybe we're back in recession, and the Fed doesn't want to admit that. So by holding out the possibility of a rate hike, they, they keep this fantasy alive. But for some reason, everybody believes, well, the fact that they're not denying that rates aren't going to go up or denying or admitting, rather, that they're not raising rates, they're saying it's possible, and, and therefore we better start discounting it into the market. Although the equity markets and the bond market don't really seem to be discounting at all. Everything seems to be in the gold stocks, which gold stock indexes were down another 5% today. I mean, they're still way up on the year, but we've seen a significant correction on the speculation that the Fed might raise rates. Of course, they might not. Right? We're going to get a jobs report on Friday. And of course, if it's a really weak report, well, the rate hikes are completely off the table once again. So there's obviously a potential for a huge reversal if we get a really weak jobs number. But if we get a jobs number that's that matches expectations or maybe even slightly exceeds them, how much more upward move would the dollar get or downward move would gold get based on the fact that we might actually get another rate hike? And of course, even if we do get a rate hike in uh, September, I bet the odds would drop sharply for another one in December so that we would have one rate hike in 2016. We had one in 2015. So the Fed is on a pace of one hike per year, although I doubt they'll be able to maintain that pace in 2017 because they're going to be cutting rates by then for sure. The election will be over and there will no longer be a need to pretend that there's still a recovery going on. But again, one of the reasons that I think that the Fed doesn't want to come out and say that rates are not going to go up they want to maintain the possibility is so they can take away that possibility as their first real easing, right? Because that's like a rate cut. So if they change their forward guidance from a rate hike is possible to a rate hike is probably not going to happen, then they can say a rate cut is possible to actually cutting rates. See, since they have so little wiggle room to actually cut rates, they want to have a lot of room to alter their forward guidance. And so by maintaining this possibility of a rate hike, they still have some dry powder in reducing, I guess, the probability of that possibility or taking the possibility off the table. And I still think they're trying to reserve that for after the election. And we'll see. Meanwhile, you know, the economic news that is coming out is mixed at best. I mean, every once in a while, we get a data point that is better than expectations. Like today, we got consumer confidence numbers that were higher than expected. They were looking for 97.3, and we got 101.1, right? That that really hurt the gold market when it came out and helped the dollar because, hey, if consumers are confident, well, maybe they'll go out and spend. Yeah, but maybe they're falsely confident. Maybe they believe that things are going to get better, but they're actually going to get worse. And false confidence is never good. Meanwhile, you know, I don't care. Maybe they're confident, but they're broke. Maybe they're hopeful that they will, won't be as broke, but I think they're wrong. Meanwhile, if you look at the Case-Shiller Index that came out today, home prices were down uh, for the third consecutive month. That hasn't happened for about three years. And that's probably a sign that real estate prices have further to fall. The reason prices are going down is because people can't afford to buy. And if the Fed were to actually raise interest rates, then houses would be that much more expensive, which would mean prices would have to come down all the more to make them somewhat affordable to potential buyers. But I don't see how you look at all of the economic data and jump to the conclusion that Things are so much different than they were a couple of months ago. They're not. All that's different 
is some of the Fed rhetoric. But again, it's always couched in the data dependency language that, yes, it's possible, but it depends on the data. And so they haven't actually committed themselves to doing anything, because even if the data is better than expected, that data might not necessarily be good enough for the Fed because they haven't actually quantified it. But what I want to talk a little bit more about on this podcast is that Jackson Hole phony protest with the fed up people. And, you know, I first found out about this fed up organization a year ago when I went out to Jackson Hole. I took part in an alternative summit uh, in Jackson Hole that was going on at the same time as the official summit. <clears throat> and I spoke at that. I mean, the, the, the talk is up on the Internet. It's up on YouTube somewhere. You can see the presentation I made uh, a year ago. But we were there at the same time this organization, uh, Fed Up, was there. And Fed Up actually had their meeting in the exact same hotel as the Fed. Now, the guy that organized our meeting tried to book that hotel before Fed Up. And he was told, no, no one's allowed to be in the same hotel as the Fed. They've got the whole hotel. There's no room for you. So they had to have their meeting, you know, 15 minutes away, kind of off the beaten path. Yet after we got there, we found out that the fed up people had been given permission to share the same location as the actual Federal Reserve. And I think the reason was the people that fed up are much more sympathetic to what the Fed is doing than my group was. And so this was orchestrated as a protest that wasn't really a protest. In fact, when I read this article, I put this up on my Facebook page. This is from the Financial Times. And the title of the article is Fed Faces Its Critics at Jackson Hole. No, it didn't. These guys weren't critics. These were like the biggest Fed promoters. These were a bunch of lackeys. Here, the subtitle on this on this article is policymakers accused of compromising interests of poor citizens in rare meeting with activists. And of course, not only did these fed up people get to protest and they had all their picket picket signs, a lot of them were the exact same signs as last year. Inflation. Seriously, we need a people's fed. Higher interest rates mean fewer jobs. You know, they say these are the same signs they had last year, except this year they actually got a meeting. With all these top Fed officials, they all sat in a room with all these fed up people. And the fed up people are basically mostly African-American, Latinos. They're supposed to be the unrepresented poorer people who have not yet benefited from the Fed's benevolent policy. So these are not actual critics. What they want, they, they think the Fed does really good. They think the Fed's policies work that they're necessary, that the Fed really can create economic growth and create jobs. They just want the Fed to keep on doing it. They don't want the Fed to stop, right? They, they don't want the Fed to take away the punch bowl. And that's the whole point of their protest. And that was the whole point of this big meeting where all these people are talking about how the Fed has done so much good and that they need to keep doing it. And so one of the guys who was there was specifically talking about how much unemployment there is in the African-American community. And he's right, right? The unemployment rate among African-Americans is very high. I mean, it was high before the Great Recession. I mean, it's just higher now. And particularly among uh, younger people, youth unemployment in the black community is like 50%. I mean, it's just off the charts high, right? But it's high across the board. And, and so he's saying, look, 
your policies have worked for white people, right? You got the unemployment rate really low for white people. You just need to keep interest rates lower for longer so that it all so it trickles down to black people. See, he said, look, you're trying to yank up the ladder just when the last white person has climbed on. But you still have all the African-Americans that want to get on that ladder. And why are you yanking it away? So just keep interest rates down, keep stimulating the economy so that the, you know, Black people and the Latino people who still are not benefiting from your great policy, give us a chance to benefit too. And he talked about all the people who are working part-time and want to work full-time and the people who are who have you know left the labor force. Just, hey, keep this great policy going until all those people get jobs. Right? Let's let, keep interest rates at zero until all the part-time people have full-time jobs and until all the discouraged people get back into the market, as if the Fed's policies was, were actually working. Of course, none of them have worked. And it doesn't even matter how long the Fed leaves interest rates where they are. It's not going to create jobs for blacks. It's just not going to do it. These jobs, if you want to create jobs in the inner cities for not only blacks, but uh, other, uh, other minorities who are still way unemployed, it's not about monetary policy. If anything, monetary policy is helping to keep them unemployed because it's diverting resources away from the real economy that might employ them into the financial economy, which couldn't care less. But this high unemployment has to do with the minimum wage law. It has to do with unions. It has to do with high taxes. It has to do with high regulation. None of this has anything to do with the Fed. right? If these guys want to protest high unemployment in the African-American community, the last place they should be is at the Fed. What they really need is regulation to be removed and taxes to be lowered. They should be protesting at the State House and at the White House. If anything, the irony of it is, by keeping interest rates artificially low, the Fed is helping to undermine the economy that might actually produce jobs. But the real problem for their, their, their high unemployment has to do with Congress and their own state legislatures not the policy of the Fed, but, you know, they don't even want to tell the protesters that. They just want to act as if they, they're really doing something and they can really do a good thing. And then you have some of these guys saying, look, you know, why raise interest rates just to fight inflation? I mean, inflation is low. You know, that's what really hurts poor people is rising prices. I mean, the rich people don't care about food prices going up or about energy prices going up where their stock portfolios are going up. It's the poor people who are part of the fed up movement. They're the ones that are hurt by inflation. They don't even want it. They're saying we need more inflation if it means we're going to get jobs. Well, it doesn't mean they're going to get jobs. They're just going to get the inflation and they're still going to be unemployed. Then you had there was one woman there. I think it was a woman who was saying that, well, you know, people are saying you need to raise interest rates so savers can earn money. And she was saying, they're already rich. People who have savings, these are the rich folks. Why are you trying to help the rich folks? Why do you have to undermine the economy? Why do you have to hurt growth and jobs just so some rich people can get some higher savings? You know, it's savings that creates jobs. If you want jobs, you need capital. And if you want capital, you need savings. And you ain't going to get savings when interest rates, real interest rates, are negative. So they don't even have any idea what they're talking about. In fact, most of these people probably were, were brought there 
They did, they were by, either they were bused there or flown there, but they didn't buy their tickets. They were brought there as part of this protest. I think they were even paid to be there. And a lot of them probably have no idea what it is they're talking about. They're reading stuff that has been written for them by other people. This is all part of the show. And I think the Federal Reserve is in on it because the Fed loves this stuff. Because they act as if they're really doing something, as if they're really making progress, as if they're really trying to help people. You know, one of the funniest ones about it was there was a woman there who was Hispanic, and she didn't even speak English. So she had a translator, and she was reading from something that was prepared in advance. And so you figure she could read it in English. I mean, if she's just reading, but I guess she, she couldn't read it in English, even if she doesn't speak English. So there's this guy translating everything she says. And she talks about how the economy doesn't have full employment. And that's a problem. Like the labor market is not functioning properly because we're not at full employment. And therefore, the Federal Reserve needs to continue its easy money policies where we can't raise interest rates yet because we want to make sure that we reach a full employment economy. And it wouldn't be right for the Federal Reserve to sacrifice all this economic growth on the altar of inflation or higher interest rates or, you know, maybe to potentially stop an asset price double. They're saying none of this would be worth it because we need to have a um, a full employment economy. And then the woman said, you know, if we had a full employment economy, I could quit my job and I can get a better job. But because we don't have a full employment economy, I'm stuck in this low paying job and I don't have you know any leverage with my employer. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, has it ever dawned on this woman that the reason she's stuck in her low paying job is because she doesn't speak any English? You know, that is a big barrier to higher pay in America. If you don't speak any English, how much money can you possibly earn working in America? Because most jobs require English, at least the ones that pay a lot of money. The ones that don't pay very much money, okay, maybe you don't have to speak any English. You can get by with Spanish. But instead of coming on a protest to Jackson Hole to try to get the Fed to print more money so that she can earn more money, how about learning some English? How about studying how to speak English? Because to me, that's a much better way for her to earn more money than for the Fed to keep interest rates artificially low for a little longer, because somehow she thinks that magically this is going to create enough jobs that she'll be able to get a better job, even though she doesn't speak any English. You know, one of the other funny parts about it was one guy in talking to, you know, the Fed bigwigs said, you know, we all know that the financial crisis of 2008 had nothing to do with low interest rates. <laughs> you know, he said it all happened because of illegal mortgages, right? First of all, the mortgages weren't illegal. Uh, that was the problem. There was a lot of fraud there, but the problem was that the government encouraged all those mortgages and the government enabled them or the Fed enabled them with cheap money because they were all adjustable rate mortgages. And then you had Fannie and Freddie that was guaranteeing them. There was nothing illegal about them. I mean, there was some illegalities on the part of borrowers who lied on their applications. But of course, a lot of the underwriters looked the other way. There was certainly a lot of fraud, I think, among the originators, the appraisers. So there was some fraud going on. But the real culprit was the Fed and Fannie and Freddie. Yet this guy comes out and says, yeah, we all know that it had nothing to do with the Fed, right? These are supposedly the Fed's critics. 
and they've completely let, let the Fed off the hook. Like, hey, you guys had nothing to do with the 2008 financial crisis. It was all the private sector and their illegal mortgages. But the point of this guy mentioning that low interest rates didn't cause the, the financial crisis was to say, why raise them now? He said, look, there's no proof that we've ever hurt. There's ever been any damage from low interest rates. So why are we raising interest rates now when low interest rates never hurt us in the past? He's saying, don't you have some other tools to deal with, you know, excess speculation on Wall Street? Can't you find another way to do that without clobbering the real economy and undermining economic growth and, and, and jobs? Because we all know that low interest rates have never harmed the economy. It's these other things, right? Now, of course, I mean, who, who wrote that stuff for this guy to say, right? It's like handpicked. This is the Fed's critic saying, hey, low interest rates never harmed anybody, right? All these bubbles, the stock market bubble in the 90s, the real estate bubble, none of that had anything to do with the Federal Reserve. None of it had to do with keeping interest rates too low for too long. So why raise them now? Let's just keep them down. And in fact, there was one of the Fed guys, you know, there and pretty much everybody agreed with these guys. I mean, nobody said, hey, what you're saying is nonsense. This is ridiculous. Everybody like applauded them for being here. This is great. You're really making a difference. You know, give every, everybody was patting everybody on the back and, and applauding everybody. But one guy was saying, you know, I see what you're saying. And, you know, we don't really want to start raising rates now because, you know, Inflation is not quite high enough yet. And why should we step on the brakes? And, you know, we want to we want to overshoot for a while because inflation was so low for so long. We know we need to let it be higher than two percent for a while just to average it all out. I mean, we don't want to start raising now just as we're, you know, getting to our objective. And they pretty much are all agreeing that the risk was that, you know, we move too quickly, that we raise too much. You know, uh, how could anybody Watch this. And this whole thing, you can watch this whole thing on the Internet. I listened to most of this a whole uh, whole discussion. How could you listen to these clowns and then and actually think that these guys are really planning on on raising on raising rates? And even if they do again, it's going to be too little too late. Now, if this was, you know, an end the Fed group, do you think there's any chance that they would have been given an audience that they would have been in a room with these Fed officials at this, these tables, and they would have been able to have this dialogue? Not on your life. Not a chance would they actually let the public see actual criticism from maybe like an end the Fed, Ron Paul type group that was actually calling the Fed out for all the problems that it's created, all the mistakes that it's made. I mean, there really could be a room full of people. There have been a lot of people damaged by the Federal Reserve that could be talking. Unfortunately, no, a lot of these people would be unemployed, even if the Fed wasn't doing this, even if we had good monetary policy. Because of our regulatory policy and because of our tax policy, a lot of the people at this Fed Up meeting would still be unemployed. And what about what about the, the schools? You know, there was one guy, I don't even know if this is true. I mean, I think it's not true. But this one guy said that African-American college graduates, college graduates, have fewer job prospects than white high school dropouts. Now, I mean, this guy said this. I have a hard time believing that that's true. I'm not saying that it's not. I mean, it could be because he said it like it was a fact. But my guess is that that's not the case. But if it is the case, if that really were the case, I mean, why don't you protest the colleges that are giving out these diplomas? You're telling me a black guy with a college diploma, he's, he's worse off in the job market than a white guy who's a high school dropout? If that is really the case, the last place that they should be protesting is at the Federal Reserve. Because there are a lot of people that have sold short the African-American community, if that's the case. And the last place they need to be 
is at the, the Federal Reserve. Now, one other thing I wanted to talk about on this podcast, I've been meaning to maybe talk about it, but uh, last week we got the very first autonomous taxi cab, and they went on the road in Singapore. So Singapore beat us to it. And these vehicles, they're still going to have human drivers in the car, but they're not actually going to be driving. They're just going to be there as kind of like a fail-safe in case something goes wrong. They can grab the wheel, but they're not going to be holding the wheel. They're not going to be stepping on the pedals. They're just going to be there in the driver's seat in case the computer screws up and they're there. But they're going to go on the road. And I know I've read a lot about how this is, you know, an example of how technology is bad because a lot of people are going to be unemployed. Remember, you know, a lot of people recently got jobs driving for Uber or driving for Lyft. Obviously, if they go autonomous, all these jobs are going to go away, which, of course, you know, would make a lot of politicians happy because people are protesting. They don't like these Uber jobs because they they don't come with all the benefits because they're independent contractors and the government is trying to say, look, you know, you got to pay them more. Well, the way Uber can solve the problem is by not hiring people at all. And I guess that's an improvement as far as the government's concerned, because, you know, the government is basically saying, hey, either you hire people the way we want you to or don't hire them at all. Well, they can say, well, we won't hire them at all. And then there'll be there'll be no jobs. But they think that this is, you know, a bad thing because these, you know, computers are going to put people out of work, particularly when it comes to truck driver. A lot of people don't realize this, but the number one occupation for men in America, as far as the number of men that are in this occupation, right? How many millions of people are in the occupation? The, the, the biggest occupation by numbers for men in America is truck driver. And obviously, if we have autonomous trucks, all those truck drivers are out of work, right? I mean, now, if they own their own truck, that might not be a bad idea because they can still get paid. They just don't have to drive it. So if you own your own truck, right, and now you can automate it, Right. You can still collect money on that truck and you not you don't have to drive it yourself. So that's still a benefit for the guy that owns the truck. But if you don't have the truck, if you're just an employee from a guy that owns a truck, well, you're out of a job. Right. Because that that the truck owner doesn't need you anymore because now he can use he can use a computer to do what you used to do. But people are saying, oh, this is bad. This show this is an example of why technology is bad, because it's going to put all these cab drivers and truck drivers uh, chauffeurs, right? They're all going to be out of work. But this is not an example of why technology is bad, but a beautiful example of why it's good. Because all of this is going to be a huge benefit for mankind. We will all have better standards of living if we can automate our automobiles. Because right now, a car is a tool, right? A bus is a tool, a truck is a tool. But we have to operate it manually. But if, it can, if it's automated, if the tool operates itself, then there's less work for human beings to do. And so now our life is better because we have less work and we have more leisure. I mean, I just mentioned the truck drivers. Think about this. Think about right now, truck drivers get tired. They can't drive 24-7. In fact, there's all kinds of complicated uh, rules And these truck drivers have these logs they have to have with them and they have to pull over in these rest stops. They have to they have to sleep and they have to, you know, it, you know, it, it's difficult. And, of course, truck driver 
you know, when you're driving a truck, you're away from your family for days and days on end. I mean, it's not an easy job. And it's one of the reasons I guess a lot of men do it, because I guess the pay is pretty good, but it's hard work, right? But when we automate these trucks and when the trucks are autonomous, right, the trucks can go 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Nobody has to worry about whether or not, um, you know, the driver is too tired, right? Because the driver never gets tired. And, of course, now the equipment is in operation. One truck can be operating for a lot more time period. Plus, also, the trucks themselves, when you manufacture a truck and a human is going to operate it, these trucks, you know, they're like they're almost like campers. If you look at the uh, some of the, you know, the trucks that pull the big loads, they have whole bedrooms back there. And they're very nice because people spend a lot of time you know, living out of their truck. Well, obviously, when the trucks are automated, you don't need all that extra space, right? Because you know, the computer doesn't need need that. So the trucks are going to be much more efficient. They're going to be in operation 24-7. They're not going to have accidents, right? Truck drivers get accidents. And, of course, you know, getting into an accident with a truck, if you happen to be in a car, you know, that's not – you don't want to be in an accident with a truck. So this is going to be huge for trucking. But then just think about for, for automobiles, I mean, the number one cause of death, right, is car accidents. People get killed in car accidents, right? That's going to pretty much stop. I mean, every once in a while, sure, you know, one of these computers could malfunction. But the computers are going to be much more reliable than human beings. So, I mean, we're going to cut way down on uh, accidents when cars are driving themselves. And now you don't have to worry about drunk drivers, right? I mean, that's... I mean, people can go out drinking because the car is going to drive all by themselves. So now not only will fewer people die, but what about insurance? Automobile insurance will go way down. Life insurance policies will get cheaper. So people will have a lot more money because now they don't have to worry about spending all that money on insurance. I mean, there are so many things that are going to be benefited by autonomous automobiles. I mean, what about people's lifestyles? What about all the time that people spend in traffic driving back and forth to work? That's dead time. You're in your own car, driving back and forth to work. Well, what if while you're in your car, it's driving itself, and now you can actually do some of your work while you're in the car? So now you're productive in your car. You're not just stuck in traffic. I mean, driving is not fun. I mean, if you're on an open road and you're in a sports car with a top down and you're just driving and downshifting and having fun, yeah, you can enjoy driving. But most people are on the freeway driving in traffic. There's nothing fun about that. It is a chore. That's why wealthy people hire chauffeurs to drive them around because they don't want to do it. So they have to pay somebody to drive for them. And then they can do other things in the car that you know are more productive or more enjoyable. Well, autonomous cars means that everybody can afford what only the rich can afford because now nobody needs a chauffeur. So the fact that chauffeurs are now unemployed, that's not the bad thing. What's good is that people no longer have to buy them. You don't have to be rich to be able to enjoy being driven around because if you're going to hire a chauffeur and he's going to be a full-time driver, you got to pay that guy enough uh, to, you know, to, to at least equal what he could get if he did something else. I mean, you got to provide for that guy. That's a, that's an expense to have somebody to do that. But now when you have a self-driving car, that is a increase in the standard of living. Like, just like what happened before we had records, record players, if you wanted to listen to music, you needed to have somebody who could play the piano in your house. You had to hire a piano player or maybe you had to 
bring in a guitar player or someone that can play the violin. I mean, if you wanted to listen to music, you need someone to perform it. Who could afford to have people come and perform? You had to be pretty rich to be able to pay people to come to your house and perform when you wanted to hear music. Poor people couldn't do that. But when the photograph came out, all of a sudden, everybody can hear music. You didn't have to be rich. You didn't have to afford to hire people to come to your house to play an instrument. Now, of course, a lot of people maybe played them themselves or they, you know, they, 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 kids took piano lessons and they could, you know, entertain themselves. But that's the point that progress benefits most the average guy, the working class man, the very rich. You know, they'll always find a way to get the, the finer things of life. But it's capitalism and progress that really brings the finer things of life to the masses. And that is what autonomous vehicles are going to do. In fact, a lot of couples that now have two cars might only need one, right? Because even if a husband and wife both work, the car can drive one to the office, come back, pick up the other one, drive the other spouse. What about going to the airport? I mean, do people like to have to, you know, ask a friend, hey, can you drive me to the airport? Can you pick me up? And if you don't want to ask your friend to do it, you know, you know, you can park at the airport and, you know, what is it, $15 a day, $20 a day to park, or you have to pay uh, a car service, $100, $150 to take you to the airport. Well, when you have a self-driving car, doesn't matter. Your car drives you to the airport and your car picks you up. So you don't have to pay for parking. You don't have to bother a friend. You don't have to ask somebody or pay somebody to drive you. Your car does it. What about taxis? I mean, if all these taxis are driving around, you know, without taxi drivers, this is going to be one of the biggest advancements to the human standard of living. The fact that trucks and buses and cars can operate themselves. That dramatically increases the utility of that vehicle. I mean, imagine little kids, you know, a five-year-old, six-year-old can get in a car and go someplace. He doesn't have to be driven, you know. And, you know, older people, people have bad eyesight. I mean, this is going to be a huge, huge positive development. It is not an example of why we need more government or why we need a more active Fed, because now we have technology like, you know, autonomous cars that are going to be putting people uh, out of work. Technology has been putting people out of mundane jobs for centuries, particularly the last couple of centuries. And it's all positive. It's government that is the problem. And it will be problematic given the amount of government we have when people do lose their jobs as truck drivers and now they have to find another job. It's government that's going to make that transition harder for the people who are displaced by the advancement of technology. But of course, the people who don't lose their jobs are immediately, immediately their lives improve dramatically. But again, remember, if people now have more free time, they can be more productive. If their auto insurance goes down, right, their life insurance goes down, they have more money and more time to do other things, and that will create jobs in those areas. So we don't have to fear technology, but technology has always been used as a scapegoat as a way for people to advocate bigger government. Because obviously, when you point to the immediate effects of the people who lose their jobs, yes, it's very easy to see autonomous cars, who they're going to put out of work. It's harder to see all of the other people that are put to work more productively as a result of the improvement in efficiency. But it should be rather obvious to, to so many people 
What a huge improvement in their daily lives this technology is going to be. And in fact, one recent example, i just tell you from, from my wife. My wife got a, a ticket a couple of weeks ago for using her cell phone in the car. And I think it was like a $125 ticket for using her cell phone. Now, she wasn't even talking on her cell phone. She was using her cell phone to get directions. And she has, you know, she's got the GPS built into the car, but she needed the address to put into the GPS. So she was at a light. And while she was at a light, she was on Google trying to look up the address of a business that she was trying to go to. And then she was going to input the address into the uh, the GPS. In fact, she could she had voice command. She could have just spoken it into the GPS and it would have gone there. But she needed an address. She didn't know where it was. And so while she was stopped at a light, she used her phone to quickly look up the address. And that's when she got busted for using her phone. And, you know, she tried to explain to the officer that, look, I'm not talking on my phone. I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to get an address so I can put it in my GPS. But still, she got this $125 ticket. Now, obviously, if the car could drive itself, it wouldn't matter. She can be on her phone all she wants, um, and, and she wouldn't get a ticket. But, you know, one of the reasons I want to talk about this is to show the overreach of government, too, when it comes to people using cell phone in their cars. Because people want to say, oh, you know, this is so dangerous, the fact that people are going to use their cell phones in their cars. Well, as far as I'm concerned, cell phones, I think, in many, many cases, making it less dangerous— when people are in their car. Now, maybe if they're texting on their cell phone, uh, that's one thing. But if you're using your cell phone at the light to get an address, look, before they had cell phones, I, I had lousy sense of direction. I never really knew where I was going. And I, you know, I was a very much more erratic driver than I am now because I always made last minute turns because I was never really sure where I was going. And um, I had a map. I had one of these Rand McNally road maps and it was a big thick map and it was like a book and it, it, it was in usually I had it in the passenger seat and if I wanted to go someplace I needed to look at that map but a lot of times I remember actually driving the car trying to cradle the map on the steering wheel right between so I had the map on the steering wheel and I'm holding on to, 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 to the wheel with the map and I'm trying to see where to go and of course these maps are hard to read and the lines are very small, and sometimes it's hard to make out the streets. You're trying to, you know, figure out, you know, you're looking at the horizontal and the vertical lines and trying to figure this out. And sometimes, you know, you got to figure out which page to go to. And, of course, I'm doing this while I'm driving. And I'm telling you that trying to use a map book while you're driving is so much harder and so much more distracting than the uh, GPS on a cell phone. I mean, I think somebody with a cell phone for directions is so much safer because once you get that thing programmed and it tells you, you know, right turn 1000 feet, you know, prepare to go right. I mean, you know, you're, you're not making dangerous last minute turns when you find, when you notice a sign or, Oh, that's where I'm supposed to go. So I actually think that using your cell phone today for navigation is a lot safer and less distracting than back in my day when I had to use a map. But they never made it illegal. It wasn't illegal to use to read a map while you were driving. They never they never passed a law like that. I never got a ticket for reading a map while driving and you know but it was so much more dangerous than than the cell phone. So they take things and they blow it out of proportion. I mean, I think there, you know, there are there are a lot of people that are eating while they're driving. 
There are a lot of women that do their makeup while they're driving. I mean, a lot of these things are far more distracting than being on a cell phone. In fact, there are a lot of people that have kids in the car, in the back seat, and they're constantly looking back. You know, the kids are acting up and you're constantly looking back. And even, too, when I was younger, I remember I used to have uh, the cassette deck in the car and, you know, fumbling around. And sometimes I want to change the music and I'd have to go and find a different cassette and put it in there. And sometimes you drop one and you got to pick it up. All this stuff I was doing while I was driving, right? And so I think the technology that we have today makes things a lot safer than they used to be, yet now we're all paranoid about it and we have to keep giving out tickets. But the point is that once we get autonomous cars, none of this stuff matters because nobody is behind the wheel. doesn't matter if you're on the phone, if you're reading a map, if you fall asleep, if you're completely drunk, you're not going to get in an accident. And you're not going to cause an accident because I think that's, you know, when you're making these last minute turns, you might not get an accident, but you might cause an accident behind you. So all this stuff is going to be a major, major improvement. And, you know, I always talk about, oh, Peter, you're always negative. You're talking gloom and doom. Look, I'm not always gloom and doom. I want to talk about the way that the free enterprise system, the way capitalism improves our lives. Because it's not government that is coming up with an autonomous car. It's the free market. It's the private sector. And what is motivating private companies to do this? It's profit. They want to make a profit. But you make a profit by making people's lives better. Why is there going to be a demand for autonomous cars and autonomous trucks? Because it's going to make people's lives better. People's lives are going to be more enjoyable. They're going to have more free time. They're going to have more leisure. And it's going to drive down costs. Shipping costs are going to come down. Insurance costs are going to come down. And when you bring down the cost of living, you increase the standard of living. And these are all the things that we have to look forward to from a free market system. The key now is to restrain government, to stop government from undermining all the good things that the free market will accomplish if government gets out of the way. Today's financial advisors behave like pro wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies. Attention listeners, I have an urgent message for you. We're in the middle of a war. The global conflict is destroying the lives of millions without a single bomb being dropped. It's called the International Currency War, and your bank account has been drafted to fight. The victims in this conflict are our currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound. They are all heading to zero as irresponsible central banks compete to see who can print the most the fastest. But there's one form of money politicians and central banks can't destroy, gold. 
Today, it's more important than ever to understand the value of gold in your portfolio and to keep a close eye on major market developments. Subscribe to my monthly video cast and you'll be the first to hear my latest analysis on gold investing and the currency wars. Visit goldvideocast.com right now to subscribe for free. I call the dot-com bust, then the housing bust, and I advise clients to diversify into foreign equities and hard assets while the rest of Wall Street laughed at me. Now I want to keep you up to date on the next crisis that is brewing. My gold videocast also includes personal interviews I've conducted with other contrarian investors like Jim Rickards and Axel Merck. Gold has gone up 256% since 2003, but it has a lot further to go. Don't miss the rally. You can prosper during this time of currency wars, but only if you stay educated. Get a free subscription to my gold videocast at goldvideocast.com. That's goldvideocast.com.